readings from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 to 20. Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1 from verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer... I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And uh, for our purposes this afternoon, we note from this passage that uh, it is uh, possible to be outwardly obeying God in attending worship services and such things, and yet uh, not to know him truly. And uh, we come across a perhaps a less extreme case than we find in Isaiah 1, where the people had that inner problem of not really knowing the Lord. They'd coupled that with quite a lot of wickedness that was going on behind the scenes. And we come to a more noble example of this uh, kind of thing in Luke 18, have uh, preached on the rich young ruler on that passage in uh, Matthew's Gospel before, but this time we look at Luke 18, verses 18 to 27, the text for the sermon, and we do so in uh, connection with Westminster Confession, chapter 10, article 4, which I'll read afterwards. Verse 18, in Luke 18. And a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, 
one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things impossible with men are possible with God. And then if you look in your bulletin to the uh, copy there of Westminster chapter 10, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, article 4. The uh, first three articles were dealing with different uh, aspects of those who, uh, the calling, the effectual calling of those who are elect. And then Article 4 deals with another situation. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet they never truly come unto Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men not professing the Christian religion, be saved in any other way whatsoever, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the laws of that religion they do profess. And to assert and maintain that they may is very pernicious and to be detested. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, As we hear your word preached, will you enable us to respond to it with the whole heart in such a way that it affects the mind and soul, uh, will, uh, emotions, and also what we do with our bodies. Father, grant that we may love you with all our heart and also to love our neighbour as ourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, as uh, you may and hopefully have uh, picked up by now, chapter 10 in the Westminster Confession is about the effectual calling to the faith. And many of you will know that in Reformed theology it's common to make a distinction between the inward and effectual call in which we really hear the gospel speaking to us inwardly and that which is referred to as the external call. Uh, The external call referring to an outward awareness of what the Bible says through what we hear or what we read. Uh, The point is that not all who hear the call of the gospel outwardly, not all who hear the call of the gospel with their ears, or even all who who hear it and feel some kind of attraction to it, not all of them end up being effectually called and therefore becoming true believers. Perhaps you've even known people who have some kind of a desire to be Christians. They have some kind of a desire to know God. And for a time they come to church 
and then eventually they drift away and then sometimes they even come back again for a time and then they drift away again and then they come back again and they go through their lives sometimes like that uh, always seeming to be so close to the kingdom of God and yet never quite being able to find that necessary commitment. Well, the rich young ruler is the top of that class. Uh, He seems at first glance to be strongly committed and there's no evidence of him drifting away. Nevertheless, it is clear from this passage that there is something lacking in his life, a very important something. Three points as we look at this. First of all, the ruler's calling. Secondly, the ruler's failure. And thirdly, the ruler's need. The rich young ruler's calling, his failure and his need. In the first place, then, in terms of whether this is an external or an internal call, externally speaking, there is no doubt that this ruler was very familiar with God's word. It's highly unlikely that he could have been a ruler, that is to say a member of the Sanhedrin, especially at a young age, a rich young ruler. Uh, That's highly unlikely that he would have reached that position without impressing the establishment with his knowledge of the Old Testament, with his piety, at least outwardly, with his commitment, as it would appear, and his consistency. Moreover, when the Lord lists the second table of the law, commandments 7, 6, 8, 9 and 5, this young man is apparently quite familiar with them. And more than just familiar, he claims that he has kept all of these commandments from his youth up. So then what we have here is both a familiarity with the Old Testament and at least in some way a positive response to it in that he is trying to keep those commandments. In addition to that, the ruler obviously has heard something about the Lord Jesus. He comes to the Lord not with a trap like the rulers often did with the Lord Jesus, but he comes with an honest question. And when he comes, as we read in one of the parallel accounts in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 10, we find there that as he comes up to Jesus, he actually kneels before him. When he asks his question, he's kneeling. How many of the other leaders in Israel did that when they asked questions of the Lord Jesus? So there's a lot of respect there. And he asks Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So apparently he believes in eternal life. That was usual among the Pharisees. Uh, Not the case with the Sadducees, but it was with the Pharisees. And by asking that question, it seems that this is something he wants. That there is some kind of desire there for eternal life. On top of that, he calls Jesus good teacher. So he recognises the Lord's authority as a teacher and wants answers. It's to Jesus that he comes for for an answer. And he also views the Lord Jesus as good, which many of the Pharisees didn't, though they may have used that language. The first hint that the Lord is going to push this young man to examine himself more deeply comes with the question and comment in verse 19. The Lord Jesus asks the man, Why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. And this is a challenge. This is a challenge on two fronts. First of all, it is a challenge to the leaders, to the rich young ruler's view of the Lord Jesus. Is he just a good man? Well, of course, we know he's, he's more than that. He is God and perfect man. Is that why the rich young ruler calls him good, or is it for some lesser reason? Does he just see him as one good man among a number of other good men? And it also challenges the ruler's view of himself, of the natural man, since only God is perfectly good and man is a fallen and sinful creature, how will the ruler, on what basis, will he be able to claim that he has kept God's law perfectly? If only God is good and man is sinful, then why does this man make such a bold claim about what he's done from his youth up? So there's a double challenge here. Despite that question and comment and what follows, it's hard not to be impressed with this young man. Maybe you have known unbelievers who show a great nobility of character. I certainly have. I've known some who display more patience than most Christian people. I've met unbelievers who display, at least outwardly, more kindness than many Christian people and more generosity than most Christian people even though they're not Christians. And yet for all that, and we can be impressed with all that, as we're impressed with this young ruler, for all of that, there is still something missing, and it's a critical something. How is it, though, that unbelievers can, in the first place, excel against believers in certain areas compared to believers? How can they do so well? better at least in an outward way than most believers. How is that even possible? Well, the Westminster in this article gives us an answer to that. Part of that answer is that there are what the Westminster calls common operations of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in the people of the world first to restrain sin in order to make life on this earth livable, which it would hardly be if everybody gave vent to their most sinful desires without any restraint, then it would be hell on earth, essentially, because that's the nature of hell, a place where those restrain, the restraining influence of God is removed and people are able then and free to be fully consistent with their principle of unbelief. But in this life, the Holy Spirit restrains unbelievers so that they do not follow through consistently with that underlying hatred of God and principle of unbelief. And it's just as well that they don't follow through with that. It enables this life to go on and it enables God to continue to call his elect out of this world in a world where God's people can hear the gospel and they can, they can go through their life and they can tell the gospel to others. And that is possible because God restrains evil in unbelievers. And in addition to that, the Lord has a regard, Theodore Beza put it this way, that God always loves his handiwork and he always loves uh, what he sees, that remainder of that handiwork that he sees even in fallen man, even in unbelievers. 
There's still a remnant of that, that work that God did in creation, in creating man in his image. Man is a fallen and a tarnished image bearer, but he is nevertheless an image bearer. And that's one of the reasons, as we prayed a, a few moments ago, why we uh, strive to show love to our neighbour, even our non-Christian neighbour, because he is still an image bearer, however tarnished and fallen. And so God, in his care for his handiwork, gives many good things, many good gifts to unbelievers, what we call common grace. Uh, common grace is a non-saving and undeserved mercy to the non-elect, which the Westminster is referring to when it talks about common operations of the Holy Spirit uh, to the non-elect. Though I hasten to add, and this is where many have gone wrong with this doctrine of common grace, uh, many have gone wrong in this by using that to play down total, the doctrine of total depravity as if that common grace makes man not really totally depraved after all and they use it sometimes to play down the antithesis, it's called that fundamental opposition between the Christian and the non-Christian that comes from the fact that one loves God and one hates God. And uh, we should never play those things down. In addition to that, when talking about the non-elect, those of the non-elect who hear God's word, that word itself has varying effects upon them, again, according to those common operations of the Holy Spirit. And so we find in the parable of the seed falling on different kinds of soil, in Matthew 13 and, par and parallels, we find quite different reactions some of which seem for a time to be very positive, even though they don't last. And uh, so in all of this, we see that the unbeliever may act very inconsistently with his underlying principle of unbelief. At the same time, believers also act inconsistently. And that's what sometimes makes things look so confusing on the outside. Unbelievers act inconsistently because we always have that sinful old nature clinging to us. And sadly, we listen to it far too often. We are governed at heart by that new life that is implanted by the Holy Spirit. We are governed in our lives by the Lord Jesus Christ, by means of his word and spirit. But we do not live out of that as we should. And that then results in this situation that Christians at, time, at times may appear less noble than a non-Christian will at times. And yet, the bottom line remains that one is saved and the other one is not. Given, though, that there is such a high level of nobility in the young ruler, the question is, is it actually true to speak of him as an unbeliever? Our second point, the ruler's failure. And uh, here over against some, uh, there are some who argue that all Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler is this, that he's saying uh, he's dealing with the rich young ruler as a believer, and he's simply saying there's one area in your sanctification that needs a little bit more work, and that's what you do with your money and your possessions. And over against that, I want to maintain that the Lord shows in the way he addresses the ruler that this man... For all his nobility, 
For all he's trying to do with God's word is nevertheless outside of God's kingdom. Look carefully at the Lord's reply in verses 22 to 25. The Lord identifies what the ruler lacks, where his failure lies, and it is an issue of coveting, 10th commandment. He should sell all he possesses, distribute it to the poor, and follow Jesus in his mission. Then the Lord promises that he will have he does this, he will have treasure in heaven, which implies that if he doesn't do it, he won't have that treasure in heaven. The ruler on his part is very sad when he hears these words because he's extremely rich and he cannot bring himself to do what the Lord has said, that one critical thing, which is a tip of the iceberg thing. The Lord then looks at him, and that's significant too, the Lord looks directly at him when he says these words. So this is a piercing kind of glare, or not glare, but a piercing look, piercing gaze. He looks at him and he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And by looking at him as he says that, the implication is, that the rich young ruler has not entered the kingdom of God. And of course, verse 27 goes on to say, it is impossible for a man to overcome such a problem without God's help. It is impossible to overcome that problem uh, in one's own strength. I said this is a tip of the iceberg thing, the 10th commandment, coveting. It is a tip of the iceberg because... By pointing out to this issue of coveting and of wrong priorities that the ruler has, the Lord is showing the ruler that he's actually got it wrong on all the other commandments. And that's where the 10th commandment is so particularly important in this respect that it shows that keeping the commandments is a matter of the heart, of the whole inner person, and not just a matter of external behaviour. Coveting, the Tenth Commandment, has to do precisely with this issue. It has to do not so much with the external things, but it has to do with our desires. It has to do with what's on the inside, with the heart. Coveting comes in two forms. Uh, it includes inwardly desiring something that God has forbidden, but it also includes inordinately desiring something that is lawful. So when you want it too much and you put it on too high a priority. But either way, it is a matter of something inward. It's a matter of desires. And it's the one commandment that you cannot escape from by retreating into, oh, I'm doing what God requires because I'm doing it outwardly in a way that people can see. They can't see my heart, can't see what's going on there, but they see what's going on externally. And this is the one commandment that you can't do that with because it's entirely about our inward desires, matters of the heart. And that's where this commandment has such a, a, an important role to play. And Because if this ruler had applied that truth, if he had learned from the 10th commandment, this truth, and applied that then to the other commandments, that he would have seen that he hadn't truly kept any of them. And we see that brought to the fore by the Lord Jesus 
who knows exactly where to, to aim and where the target needs to be hit. And this is shown by the fact that the Lord picks on this issue of his wealth and his possessions. Because what does it mean that this man can't give up his possessions? It means that he is an idol worshipper. He has made money and possessions such an idol that he cannot put, turn away from them and, and follow the Lord Jesus and show that commitment to the Lord Jesus. And that is contrary to the first commandment. The rich young ruler never kept the first commandment from his youth. He never kept the tenth commandment from his youth and he still wasn't keeping it. And in fact, he could work through every other single commandment and do exactly the same thing. Look at what's going on in the heart and discover that actually he hadn't kept any of them. He was a failure at every point. That's why we have to conclude that the ruler did not actually believe in the Lord Jesus. Uh, belief, faith, the catechism defines that nicely for us. And uh, faith we understand is a matter of right knowledge. But it's also a matter of right conviction or personal commitment. As well as being a matter of assurance. And the problem with this young man especially comes to the fore in that question of commitment. Commitment to the Lord Jesus. He did not have the necessary commitment. His commitment was to mammon, to material things. He did not love the Lord Jesus. He did not love God more than his wealth. And therefore we have to say that this man was not saved. And the fact that he was not saved is also demonstrated by the question... The follow-up question of the disciples, then who can be saved? Verse 26. If a man is outwardly pious, according to the Old Testament laws, if a man like this isn't saved, if he's like the camel trying to go through the eye of the needle, then what hope for anyone? In a way, the Westminster chapter 10, article 4, follows a similar pattern. It uh, speaks of those who were called by the word, by common operations of the Holy Spirit, those who have not truly come to Christ. They have not truly come to him and been saved. And then it goes on to say, much less can a man not professing the Christian religion. In other words, someone who doesn't, profess the true religion as the, this ruler professed it. He didn't live it. He wasn't committed, but he did profess it outwardly. The young ruler is at the pinnacle of unbelieving nobility as one trying to follow the Old Testament. If he can't be saved, how much less for those who are within the false religions? Even if they live the best way that they can, according to the light of nature, according to their inborn sense of right and wrong, or according to the, the laws of that other religion, which they may follow as sincerely as they can. The Lord Jesus addresses this question and this issue categorically, and he says, this is a thing that is impossible for man. The Westminster 10 Article 4 adds, 
it is very pernicious and detestable to say otherwise. Because if you say otherwise, if you say that someone may be saved by sincerely and uh, uh, consistently following the light of nature or the rules of other false religions, if you say that a man can be saved in that way, then as we saw this morning, that man does not need the grace of God. And as we saw this morning, that man does not need the, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He can do it in his own strength. And as we also saw, that further denies the biblical teaching of total depravity and the teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why the Westminster says it is pernicious and detestable to maintain this error. What then is the solution for anyone in the young ruler's predicament? Those who have an interest in salvation, but it appears that the seed has not yet fallen on fertile ground. It's on the wrong kind of ground. Those who have heard the external call of the gospel, but it hasn't yet become effectual in their lives, in their hearts, internally. Our third and final point, the ruler's need. Well, what is needed, especially and essentially, such people need the grace of God. In every one of the synoptic gospels, they all have the account of the rich young ruler, the synoptics, and in every one of those, the account ends with a punchline. And the punchline is, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. In other words, it depends totally on the grace of God. It does not depend on man, as we also heard this morning. Only God can bring camels through needles' eyes. I don't know if you've uh, tried to thread a needle. It gets harder as uh, you get older. That fine cotton thread going through that teeny little hole in the end of the sewing needle, or in my case, the fishing nylon going through the hole in the the eye and the hook. Uh, Those things become harder. Hard enough with a fine piece of cotton or some fishing line. How much more if you grabbed a camel from the zoo and tried to push that through the needles, through the sewing needle's eye, or through the eye on the hook? Obviously something impossible. And that's the point. It is impossible without the grace of God. Only he can send his word, only he can send the gospel to those uh, who are operating from the light of nature or operating from out of false religions. Only God can decide he's going to send the gospel to that person. And having sent the gospel to that person, only God can send his spirit to do more than grant common operations to those who hear the gospel's call. Only God could go further than that and work internally in the person, internally call them, give them a new heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone in regenerating them, and give them the gift of faith. And of course, only God has chosen those who will be saved. Only God can and has given those elect to his Son. And only God can and has sent the Lord Jesus to live and to die for those same people on the cross. And it is absolutely impossible for man to organise or create or do any one of those things, let alone all of them that lead to a man being effectually called. In terms of that gift of faith, again as I noted this morning, 
that is something in which we're active, but it results in a and involves a turning from sin and a turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, a love of the Lord Jesus Christ, a trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, a commitment, a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, which then enables us to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And those things are needed too. When the Lord Jesus calls on the ruler to sell everything and follow him, presumably in this context he means as part of his special band of disciples who followed the Lord as he, he travelled around, relying on God to provide for them and taking very little else. It doesn't mean that everybody today who follows Jesus has to sell everything and become an itinerant, a travelling missionary. But what it does mean that each one of us needs this kind of commitment and this kind of trust in the Lord Jesus that would enable us to sell everything if that were required. As opposed to the kind of idolatry involved in this ruler's life that says, Lord, if you require that, I'm sorry. I can't do that and I'm not going to do that. Now, I'm aware that uh, sometimes... Uh, people in our churches come to the conclusion that they are perhaps like this ruler. Those who attend church regularly as members, trying their best to stick to the rules, but yet feeling that there's something lacking in their lives. And there can be various reasons for that. One of them is the fact that there's something lacking in each one of us. No matter how closely we know the Lord, we've always got deficiencies. And those of more sensitive consciences sometimes look at those things and in their own minds they become increased to such a huge degree that even though they actually do know the Lord, they feel, I'm so far from it. So that's one kind of situation. But I'm talking here about something more uh, problematic even than that, and that is where one would honestly have to say that there is that, that vital interest in the things of the Lord is, is lacking. You come to church each week, you should have some idea of that. You come to church each week and you, when you go back you say, I wish I didn't have to go. I wish I didn't have to read the Bible each day. I do it because I have to, but wish I didn't have to. And so forth, that that interest in spiritual things in your heart of hearts you know is not there. If you know that there is a lack of love and trust and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, and if that would be an accurate assessment, then this I would say to you, don't despair. Ask the Lord to help. Because as we're being told here, the only remedy that's possible is found in him. You won't find it anywhere else. And you certainly won't find it in your own strength. Ask him to give you a heart for him. Ask him to give you that commitment that is lacking because he's the only one who can. And be aware as you ask that there may be, in fact I probably would have to go as far as to saying there will be some particular idols that you need to give up and some sacrifices that are involved in following the Lord. But not to earn your own salvation, never that, rather to express it as one who has been effectually called. 
Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that our commitment to you is not what it should be. Will you help us to become more committed to following the Lord Jesus according to the details of the calling that you have given each one of us? Father, help us to remember and to point out to others outside your kingdom that external compliance with your law is not enough and trying to do good to other people is not enough. We need faith to unite us to the Lord Jesus Christ, a faith that only you can give. And Father, we pray that you would not only have granted, but also to keep that faith alive in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The union of the church with the Lord Jesus Christ is seen to be particularly close to um, a particularly close relationship and union in that analogy of the church as his bride, his royal bride, and uh, we are members of that church, part of that body that is described as the royal bride of the Lord Jesus. Psalter Hymnal 83, stanzas 1 to 5, we will stand to sing, and would you please remain standing afterwards for the blessing and doxology.
blessing as our doxology, we sing from the Psalter Hymnal 135, stanza 4. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>